Welcome to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of Kiss Organics. This is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of growing from a science-based perspective and draw on top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. In this podcast, I caught up with Brian Anderson to talk about cultivation through the eyes of an architect. How do we design our facilities to be compliant with local laws? How can we be more efficient in our designs and layouts? How does the methodology of different growth styles impact your design? Brian covers all this and much more. Brian is a founding partner of Anderson Porter Design, an international practice focused on design and architecture for the cannabis industry. Anderson Porter Design provides strategy, technology, design, and thought leadership built on 20 years as a general practice in architecture. Since 2014, they are focused on buildings for plants, controlled environment horticulture, extraction, manufacturing, and retail dispensaries. Brian merges an RISD education in the craft tradition of making and designing objects with an analytic data-driven process to drive value along with the cannabis supply chain. He has a master's degree from Harvard and has been in practice since 1992. Anderson provides professional leadership in strategic planning and design. He speaks nationally on energy sustainability in the cannabis industry, facility design, and on interior design for retail. Now on to the show. Hey, Brian, thanks for taking the time to chat today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, happy to be here, Ted. Thank you. Yeah, now I met you at Photo X this past year. It's uh, it's a little crazy to think about how we used to get together for conferences right now with this uh, quarantine going on. But uh, I wanted to, I want, I really enjoyed chatting with you, and uh, I wanted to talk to you about this sort of architecture perspective that you have on cultivation. Uh, can we start off just giving listeners a little bit of your background and, and talking a little about who you are? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm in Arlington, Massachusetts, suburb of Cambridge and Boston. Uh, and we, so I'm an architect and principal of Anderson Porter Design. We've been, been an architect for 26 years. Um, and 20 of those years really as a general practitioner, if you will. Uh, and it was sort of in that mix of projects that we'd done that um, things came together back in 2014. Um, you know, they say that luck is the intersection of preparedness and opportunity. So um, that opportunity came for us in 2014 and the preparedness was just that very specific things in our background as architects that we had, that we had done. Uh, we had been, um, uh, you know, we're in Eastern Massachusetts and a lot of around us is uh, biotech, biofarm uh, and the like and medical device manufacturing. So uh, we have done a lot of work in medical device manufacturing and those are clean room environments. Uh, those are staff that wear Tyvek suits and hairnets and beard nets. Um, so that really lined up in the cannabis space. Uh, we had um, been the architects for the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, uh, which is a pretty big uh, role to play uh, from 1999 to 2006. And so um, if you remember 2000, you know, September 11, 2001 happened right in there. So we had a very deep background in both physical and electronic security uh, as it relates to facilities. And so in 2014, a lot of folks coming uh, to us had, you know, never spoken to the chief of police before, let alone the fire marshal. Those have been people traditionally to be avoided. Uh, we came along and we were somebody who could speak to their language. Um, and we also spoke the language of biofarm and clean rooms. Um, 
and uh, we had a background in retail. Uh, so we actually practice in uh, a lot of retail work in cannabis as well. So since 2014, that has now taken off. Uh, we had our first group here in Massachusetts. Uh, we now work, uh, we opened up a virtual office in, in um, Orange County, Fullerton, California this year in 2020. Uh, we do projects in Central Europe, uh, North Macedonia, uh, as well as uh, throughout the United States. Wow, that's that's great. I, and I, I really enjoyed chatting with you because you had a totally different perspective on cultivation than I did. Uh, my focus has always been on, you know, primarily on soil, soil biology and, and that aspect of cultivation. But you really came at it from sort of a regulatory uh, perspective, a structural and uh, workflow perspective that I thought was was sort of unique. Um, can you talk a little bit about sort of what an architect's perspective is regarding a facility? Like, what do you, sure. where do you start the conversation when you talk to a grower? Cause as a grower, a lot of times you're coming from a background like mine, you don't really think about these sorts of things, uh, in detail. You know, it's, it's funny what I'll answer it. And it's, I think it's important to understand that this is not necessarily an architect's point of view. Uh, mine comes from, uh, in addition to what I sort of described there quickly as my background, when I talk to growers about how they're, uh, how to approach the grow, it comes from a knowledge uh, in lean manufacturing. Uh, we do a lot in, in our work, uh, I didn't mention that earlier, but it influences how we look at cultivation uh, from a workflow uh, and work practice perspective. Um, as well as, so in lean, lean, if you know lean in manufacturing and lean in enterprise, i.e. business, uh, it's about organizing things to eliminate waste. And so we look at cultivation facilities and, and manufacturing facilities uh, for weed. You know, manufacturing is anything from pills to vape cartridges to, to uh, pre-rolls. Um, as a, if, there's an efficient flow to the work. And so we, we line up the steps that you take uh, by interviewing, right? So we, we interview the grower to understand how they grow, what's important, what soil media they use, cocoa versus, versus rock wool versus living soil, and then begin to arrange the, the spaces needed for people to do work. So everything from, you know, let's arrange the shipping bay and the receiving bay so that we have a quarantine space. Uh, everybody today, you know, due to COVID, we all sort of understand quarantine in a new way and how important that is. Uh, you don't want to bring in some distributor's junk and, you know, beetle encased in a wooden pallet into your, into your grow. And so, you know, we, we're, so we're thinking about factors that are related to the grow, but that affect work and reflect, uh, affect the health and maintenance uh, and safety ultimately uh, of how to protect how to protect the plant. So we're kind of weaving in things that we learned from from lean and efficiency in work process to the physical things like how to build a quarantine room so that you can push things effectively in from the shipping bay, the dirty side, and pull things out from the clean. Let's say your harvest corridor is a clean corridor where people are observing you know, good manufacturing practices and good agricultural practices. So they've already been through a, uh, a you know, the workforce comes in through an air, an air pressure zone or, a, you know, a, a, an airlock, and they may have, uh, you know, gowned up in a Tyvek suit. And so that those two worlds 
kind of don't overlap, that they're always separated. That's one way that we look at, at breaking down the work into its parts. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up a quarantine space. That was something that I was hoping you would address. Uh, I think it's one of those things that sometimes gets overlooked in facilities or when people try to adapt buildings that weren't originally designed. I mean, if you're building from the ground up, it's pretty easy. But if you're having to come into an, a space that's already been uh, already been built, that is a challenge. But I can't agree with you more that that's such an important aspect of it. And then when you talk about lean, um, Interestingly enough, I've had a gentleman, uh, Ben Hartman, on the podcast talking about the lean farm, kind of looking at, at oh, outdoor farming uh, from a lean perspective, which was a big mental gap for me uh, versus, you know, this this more facility based manufacturing perspective. Um, and there's really a balance in there. But a lot of growers don't think about the fact that, uh, you know, when you're growing by yourself on a medical side with 25 lights maybe you and one other person, uh, you don't really need to think about your workflow as much. But when you try and expand that to 10, 15, 20 times that size uh, workflow, the number of steps you take in the day, the number of uh, times you have to handle a particular material, that waste adds up really, really fast and takes up a lot of time. Uh, oh, that's yeah. a really good point. Yep. Yeah. Anybody's ever been a grunt? On a on a construction site, or anybody who's ever been a grunt in a in a in a farming environment knows that you know your boss says pick that pile up and move it over there, and then after lunch you're told pick that pile up and move it over there, right? And if you've ever been in that situation, that's completely not lean, right? Moving things once, knowing you know, never setting something down on the floor is a really good thing to think about. Wow, right? Think about an organized workspace where nothing ever gets set down on the floor because that's just time, time to set it down, time to move around it, pick it back up. If we could eliminate that, think of how many more transplants you could do, right? How, does it, how much time does it take to take a clipping from a mom and put it into an easy clone machine, right? How, how quickly can you do that? And if you're, in, if you're growing 25 plants, it's no big deal. You don't think about it. But if you've got a, you know, a hundred thousand plants and you, you, you just, you know, one crew just broke down a room and harvested it and your job is to populate it now in the same day. So time doesn't slip on the schedule. How much time does it take to put, you know, 1500 clones in an easy cloner and move the, you know, the, the, you know, the ready ones out. All that takes time. And so you want to eliminate wasted steps. Yeah. One of the uh, examples that, that Ben gives when he gives his talk, to a smaller audience is he'll he'll bring a bunch of envelopes and he'll have people come up front and he'll have uh, one group do the envelopes like putting a, a stamp on them sealing them putting the letter in uh yeah all all without setting down the envelope go through all the steps at once and then the other group yep. will do the whole thing well they'll they'll stuff the envelope and they'll stuff so they'll stuff 50 envelopes and then they'll go back and they'll lick and close 50 envelopes and then they'll add the stamp yep. and you would think that doing the same motion over and over again uh, you know, like the, the second option there of, of doing all 50 stuffing at once would be faster, but it's actually it takes so much longer because you're having to retouch and set down these envelopes right. so many times. It's that's a really right. cool thought experiment that you, anyone can try at home kind of thing. That's, it's kind of fun. There are so many of those, um, um, in many ways we call them design games. They're, they're, they're sort of interactive, um, games that use game theory to teach uh, fundamental lessons. And so um, 
yeah, I'm involved uh, in doing a lot of those teaching exercises for Lean. Uh, we have one called the airplane game. And you have a team with Legos to assemble this airplane. You're told exactly how many Legos to use. And the rules set it up so that it's very similar to the envelope stuffing game, which uh, teaches that lesson that the fewer times you pick something up and put it down, and the better the communication amongst the team that's doing something, you can eliminate enormous amounts of time. And it's not always intuitive. Many, many times it's counterintuitive. You don't think, you think, right, if you, if you rely on your gut, we often get things wrong in terms of thinking about what takes the most time versus what would be a shorter way to do it. Yep. Yeah, and, and when you say time, we're not talking about rushing or moving faster necessarily than the other group. We're talking about just moving more efficiently, and I think that's important. It's not that's about right. speeding up the employee. It's just about no. making the steps that they're having to take uh, take less time. That's right. And that comes up, so in facility design around, around you know, grow facilities, um, breaking it down all the way to, the, to its parts, I know that many people will um, feel forced to accept things that you may actually be able to change. I mean, those, those could be things like walls, right? Many people don't think to move the wall, right? But when you think about the amount of money that's being spent and the amount of money at stake, moving and rearranging walls within a building can improve workflow, right? Many times we accept the way things are like, well, this building only has 600 amps, right? I could really use 1200 amps, but it only has 600. So I'm only going to make my grow fit. Uh, many times those have to do with money, right? All these, everything's impacted by money. But um, a lot of the work of architecture is to break down a lot of things that are assumed and um, challenging those assumptions uh, so that we can change things and adapt them so that ultimately the uh, finished product works in the most effective and efficient manner. Yeah, so I want to ask, so what are some of the common pitfalls that you see when uh, coming onto a project like this from, a, from a, your perspective? I mean, you already mentioned one of, of, as a grower, feeling limited by the structure in front of you that may actually be adaptable um, if you can yep. kind of step out of that box. But what other things might you see um, in, terms of, in terms of that perspective? Um, yeah, you mentioned it earlier, which is this idea of um, understanding regulations. So um, as an architect, we're trained to look at things uh, from the point of view of who's regulating it, right? So OSHA, for example, the Occupational Safety and Hazard uh, you know, of, of Workers Protecting Worker Safety. So we look at OSHA, we look at building codes, you know, establishing how to get out of a you know, building the most quickly, right? So we, we look at, um, in case of a fire, so, so we think we look at things through the eyes of the fire marshal, or we look at things through the eyes of a of a uh, of our state regulator, like the cannabis regulating regulator in each state is going to want to see certain things, and so we start from we start from that because we know that that's an absolute. If we don't pass that uh, that inspection, it was all for naught, right? So we have to do that. So we take those and we order things around life safety, right, and then health. So that has to do with choosing of wall materials so that they comply with, you know, being able to be wiped down. We talk about aseptic conditions, right? Floor materials, wall materials, ceilings, making sure that we can put ceilings in so that, because it's, you know, how impossible it is to clean around ductwork, right? So you don't want to messy, you know, all that duct and junk up above your plants. Um, 
And so what else? So we think about it in terms of, you know, where sprinkler heads, all that sort of stuff, right? So how do we mix the life safety from the systems to the life safety from the building materials um, and then flow of work? Uh, you know, ordering the, the, the group, you know, so ordering this, the, the number of rooms, grow rooms, how many should there be? That's where we work very, very closely with growers to establish their grow pattern. Um, Cause that has to do with the fundamental units of, of work. How many, you know, how many clone rooms, how many veg rooms, um, how many mom rooms, um, you know, thinking about, well, is it, is it really just one or should we make it two? So what happens if something happens to your moms, right? And you need to clean that room out. What do you do when you're cleaning out your mom room, right? You need another one for the overflow um, to, you know, making sure that the veg room is, 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 is sized properly to handle the number of throughput for your final flower count um, to establishing exactly the right room dimensions uh, for the flower rooms, you know, how, based on number of lights or based on whether you're using uh, tiered, you know, pip racked, pip style, you know, movable benches or whether you're using a flat GGS roll top. Uh, all of those things have dimensional requirements um, right down to door sizes. I don't know what to say is the most, um, what comes into play the most common, but I don't know. It's it's fun having it's it's for me professionally. It's very fun having a certain set of skills that I learned as an architect and finding them really really adaptable to you know when talking to growers right and and thinking about gee you know should, let's make this door 42 inches wide instead of 36 you know it'd be easier to get a cart through it and it's and the response is like oh yeah you know like we can do that right we don't have to bang our knuckles on the door jams every time we're pushing a cart through. Um, so it's sometimes it's really simple things like that, um, to where to put an RFID, you know, batch reader, uh, or how to work with and how to integrate, um, data collection so that a grow could, you know, accelerate through, um, through big data, essentially through data collection and machine learning, um, you know, everything from the tech side to the sort of fundamental or, you know, concrete side of how wide to make a door. Um, it's hard to say which 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 precedes the other, but putting them in all in order is a lot of fun. Yeah, that's that's one thing we've thought about with the type of growing that we do is how if you're growing in a bed, uh, if you do need to remove a bed from a room and it fits nicely on a pallet, how do do we have a door frame that allows us to move the pallet in and out with a pallet jack, which is saves a ton of time. You don't want to get to the door and then have to shovel it, you know, through that door space. Right. Um, so that's a, that's a really important consideration. Are you, are you finding though that regulations always line up with optimal cultivation practices? Do you have any good example of, of a, a time when regulation kind of limited the ability of a cultivation facility or a grower to really do what they want to do? I'll point to a recent one. I think the state of Illinois has stepped in it uh, in a bad way when they, outlawed outdoor growing, right? The state of Illinois in their latest issue has uh, made it not possible for farmers to grow cannabis outdoor in the state of Illinois. Think about what that does from a, just from a carbon perspective, right? That means that all cannabis grown in the state of Illinois have to be grown indoor under lights or in a closed greenhouse with a mixed light, um, right? 
it would be very efficient to grow outdoors, like soybean growers and corn growers in, in Illinois aren't complaining about the DLI and the weather. They're doing just fine. So why wouldn't cannabis be allowed to grow outdoors? So I do think that state law affects in a big way what we do as an industry and what we're able to do in as, as an industry. So I'm going to you know, make an easy prediction that a lot more carbon is going to be consumed in Illinois with you know, light fixtures and construction and all the things uh, that you know, if your grow plan is to produce you know, um, for a broad spectrum distillate, and you're going to be, you know, extracting everything, then outdoor would be a, you know, great way to do that and save and save costs and save energy costs. But the state of Illinois has outlawed that. That's one example. Um, another, maybe the, you know, the, the one that gets a lot of press is that 36 watt per square foot. And that came out of the Massachusetts regulation. So my home state, um, and the jury's out as to whether it, its intent is clear. Its intent was to limit high-pressure sodium lamps, right? The use of high-pressure, it was to limit the use of high-pressure sodium, HPS, double-ended HPSs. And that, you know, puts a cramp in a lot of people's style. That I mean, if your knowledge base entirely was based on growing under HPS, then that requirement is going to seem completely foreign. Um, it does allow for, it, it does not technically disallow high pressure sodium, but if it spreads this, if it spreads the lights out too far, if a five and a half foot grid is just not acceptable, it has to be a, you know, four by four and a half, that may exceed the, the, the lighting power density. Um, but there's other things that can be done. And there's, there are ways in which that can be um, utilized. Um, but that all, I don't know, if, you know, it's a deep, deep rabbit hole to get into is the differences between LED and HPS, but um, that's one area in which the law is trying to mess around and has a lot of growers twisted around the axle. Yeah, I think it's uh, it also raises your cost potentially too, as traditionally LED lights are going to be more expensive than that's uh, right. double end HPS. And there's such a, a range of quality in the LED market um, right that's now. Right. It's gotten a lot better. But I, I do know that people have made poor lighting decisions for an entire facility and, and come to regret it, uh, which actually brings me to another point that you brought up in our in our email exchange, which was uh, around the idea of growers picking a path and sort of sticking to it. Can you kind of elaborate on that um, and kind of what you meant? Yeah, sure. So, um yeah, one role one role that I play often with uh, groups um, is trying to avoid uh, going to trade shows and falling in love with the newest shiniest object. Right? There's there are in the past six years, it seems like every three months a new piece of equipment comes out, comes to market, and that can be really distracting. So the newest shiniest object, you know, comes out of a trade show, and um, we have spent an inordinate amount of time uh, researching that newest thing and really chasing it to ground to find out, only to find out it may not even be UL listed, right? Or it doesn't have certain, you know, it's not listed on the DLI index of approved lighting or it's, right, um, that following really, um, how do I put this? Like, 
sticking to traditional grows and not venturing out into new technology is, is usually a wise decision, right? Um, growing to getting to scale on with, 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 um, achievable means is, is, is important as opposed to trusting in one piece of technology, uh, as a, as a, as a, as a solution. I don't know if that's quite answers your question. Yeah, I get, I get what you're saying. I mean, in my experience, the cannabis industry has some of the, uh, some of the best, uh, marketers and, uh, <laughs> I guess I would almost say yep. like snake oil salesmen when it comes to promoting a product. Uh, yeah. and, and a lot of times you'll find that these products are unproven. They don't have the yep. science to back them up. And like you mentioned, they may not even make regulatory uh, requirements. And right. so you will find a grower that will go and that's building a facility. will go and see something. And we've been, I, I don't know, lights are probably the easiest example of this, but, uh, the idea of scaling a facility and making such a large investment in an unproven technology is I think really, really challenging. Um, even right. when they give it to you at a discount, um, which I see that happen quite a bit with these facilities too, is they're like, well, this one company is going to give me a pretty good deal on the, on these lights or on this technology. Uh, I'm going to give it a shot. Uh, it's, it's risky. Like you said, it's very risky. So one of those, yeah. So I've been, there are, there's a, there's a, a new game in town in the past couple of years, which is um, foreign investors who have set up companies in the U S and the, the hook that you call it, that the snake oil salesman uses is, oh, we're going to finance this for you, right? Because they know that getting finance for this facility is, the, is one of the main hurdles to getting open. And if, a, and if a salesman comes along and says, hey, we've got this new technology and we're going to finance it for you, it becomes really easy trap to fall into. And that's, a, that's something to be, to be very wary of. Um, there are groups out that are, that are making their products seem like they've solved everything but when you get under the hood you realize oh you can never change out the lights what if that light isn't really what you want can't change it right because it's part of a it's part of a machine that you bought that's you know designed to grow weed for you and it's all automated and it's all built into the box and you can't change it so yeah there's a lot of um there's a lot of things coming to market that need to be that need to be investigated. So I, yeah, I repeat that: don't invest a, a massive amount of money and, and hinge your success on an unproven technology. Yeah. Now I do like the idea if there's room in the facility to have sort of a, an R and D space that allows you to trial different things that may or may not be improvements on your current facility structure. I don't know if that's something that you're able to design into uh, many of the buildings that you're working on. I put that into the best in class category. If we have space, if we have a, a, a client uh, with a grow team who acknowledges the need for R and D that for me is, are some of the, are the best facilities we've designed. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. So, um, let's say that you've represented to your investors what your yield is going to be right based on the number of plants and the strains and and all and your narratives your grow 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 narratives if you then can have can afford the space to have two or three rooms set aside that you can call them r d rooms you're going to do a couple of things for that grow facility you're going to give your grower and your organization the ability to test new strains bring new products to market um, investigate and fool around. 
in a, in a positive way, that's not detracting from your yields that, that your investors are counting on. Number two, and this is the, the hidden benefit of having an R&D space, is that becomes a relief valve, a kind of sacrificial space. If something goes wrong in your general population, you could evacuate a room and move it into one of those R&D spaces, sacrificing everything in there, right? Throwing that out to save what is your, you know, your core crop that, that, that harvest, right? That's a thing that, that might not be thought about in the first order, but it comes into play more often than not, right? How many people had something go wrong, but you've got nowhere to put it, right? If you could, if you could just empty out that room and actually put it in, an, in a vacant room, you'd save the crop. Uh, and that's why I think having an R&D space, um, even though you may not want to sacrifice it in a pinch, you could. And that's, that's one of those hidden benefits. Yeah, I know from working closely with Goldleaf, they have five or six flower rooms, I can't remember offhand, and they're all I- essentially identical. And while they don't have a dedicated uh, R&D space based on the limitations of the facility and their production needs, they are able to do research in a given in a given room every cycle, looking at ways of being innovative. So uh, testing out a different irrigation system, in this case, looking at the blue mats versus the way they were hand watering, allowed them to see an ROI that their return on investment by switching the whole facility over was going to save them, you know, thousands of dollars in labor. Uh, over the course of whatever given period they had established as, as for their ROI. Or, sure. you know, making a lighting change in one room allows them to decide if that lighting change should be made across the entire facility um, right. without risking your entire crop and without risking, you know, too much of your uh, of your profits uh, at the end of the day to make a change. And I, I love that idea because to commit fully to a new technology or a, a new innovation or even a new workflow, I think is, is risky without some research, some actual data to back up and support what you're doing. That's right. That's right. And that's, you know, I, from, from a lighting perspective, it's also important to, to realize that your mechanical systems that are balancing your uh, relative humidity, temperature, and vapor pressure deficit are really balanced based on the heat output. And many of those set points for HPS don't work for LED. So there has to be, so whenever those changes uh, are made or if those changes are anticipated, uh, it must be understood that the set points on the, me- on the mechanical systems have to be adapted. Otherwise, the room is going to behave entirely the wrong way under, the new light, under, under a new light choice. Sure. Now, if, if you're going from, let's just say, from double-ended HPS to LED, wouldn't you essentially have overbuilt your facility so your set points would drop, but you could still use the equipment that you had in place? It's just more than you would need, I would, I would think, or, or do you have a different experience or thought? I'll just say that each case is unique. In some ways, you've overbuilt, but in some ways, it's an entirely new animal. It's not just that you're dialing it back. It's that your, um, your sensible loads and your latent loads may have changed dramatically. And so when you think about leaf temperature, right, in those two different environments, you really need to balance that with a, um, and this is where I don't want to overstep my professional limits. And I'm not a professional engineer. I do know that leaf temperature and set points make a huge difference in, in crop performance. 
and that it's a delicate balance when you're talking about the performance of the systems that maintain that. So um, it's not always as easy as just resetting the the the, uh, the automation system or whatever's contr your controllers that are controlling those um, the temperature and relative humidity. Sometimes it needs to look at how well it's dehumidifying and testing that to be assured that um, all the parts are working together. Now, when you talk about uh, changes in technology, like, like lighting, for example, uh, one of the other things that we discussed was some of these new uh, styles of growing. Like, what, what about a facility that wants to bring in multi-tier racking into a, an existing room or even a new facility? What are some of the challenges associated with uh, these types of cultivation methods? So cost goes up enormously. Uh, simply because, A, the cost of multi-tier racking is much greater than single-tier benching. But, two, the cost of air distribution goes up, right? So if you think about a typical room with a single-tier bench, you can drop air in uh, from your system uh, at the top, right, and circulate that around uh, and, uh, and recycle it back through the, back through the uh, either rooftop unit or, or um, however you're uh, handling your air, your air handling unit. In a multi-tiered system now, you need to get air into that space between racks as well. You can't just drop it in from the, from the, from the top and, and hope to cool evenly and, and, and evenly distribute the air throughout the, through, over, over all the plants. So that is one thing that drives up cost as well. So, the, so cost is one big hurdle, but there are huge efficiencies that go up. Um, to grow, right? You can double your plant count or maybe 1.5 times your plant count. Um, and, but you have differences in labor, right? There's, there's, you know, some adjustments that have to be done. Um, one thing we advise people to do if they're thinking about doing two tiered racking systems is to, um, start out in half the rooms, right? If you're, if you're going in a phased approach, put, always start out with the, with the method, that you're going to um, employ um, in the future, right? In the future phases. So instead of thinking about just doing single tier racks as your phase one and then two tier racks as your phase two, rather start out with half the number of rooms, but do the two tiered racks. And that way your, your, your labor becomes familiar with the, with the, with the process. And then when you increase to your phase two, um, you're, you not have, you don't have to learn something new. I think that's true. Yeah, fundamentally, if you are constrained for space uh, and want to increase your yields, uh, the only way to go is up, right? To multi-tier things. I think you probably understand that implicitly in the veg, in the in the case of veg plants, right? I mean, almost everybody tiers their veg plants because that gives you more room for flower, 
And so, right, um, that's the same thinking. Now, we do it um, in cases where we're retrofitting former use buildings. Uh, we do a, a lot of our work, maybe half, half of our work is retrofit versus new build. And when, you know, when an existing building, uh, if you have space limitations, but you don't have height limitations, then going up is, you know, is a natural solution. Uh, so you build, you know, you have um, higher yields uh, per square foot. Um, I have not done a three-tier grow yet, but we've done a lot of two-tiered grow on on pip rack pip style uh, racking systems. Um, and have you seen any of those in in flower rooms? Yeah, I, I do see a lot in veg. I think it makes a lot of sense in veg. Uh, when we talk about flour, though, have you seen this successful with anyone doing purely organic production? In two tiers? Yes. So I have not personally. Um, you, know, I, you know, I work with, uh, with Mike Zartarian, who, who, you, who you know, uh, and he's been my counsel on, on a lot of things, um, no-till soil and organic living soils. Um, and what I've learned from him is that, yeah, it's just, it's harder to manage because you, if you ever have to change that out, that's just the weight uh, and volume of soil on two levels is, is a bear. Uh, and that's been one of my main takeaways that just stuck with me, right? If um, that it's just, it's harder to, it's harder to work with, uh, with organic and, and, and living soil on, on, on two levels. So I, I haven't done it. Okay, I was just curious if you'd seen it. I know there's a few people doing it right now, uh, but it has yet to be really proven to me. Um, if there's an existing facility that's been running for a while on two tiers using organics or living soils, please reach out to me and let me know whoever's listening to this. Um, but I do know some that are being set up right now uh, that I'm following closely, looking forward to see how they turn out. And I hope to do some research with it, um, either at Goldleaf or uh, my buddies at Legit, but uh, we haven't gotten around to it yet. Cat, I'll take that back. Uh, Mike and I are doing one currently. It's in design. It's a very, very small grow, maybe 930 square feet of, of uh, bench area in a 2,000 square foot garage. Um, this is a great, great example. Uh, and it is, in fact, I, I, my memory has been jogged. I do, in fact, have one uh, that is two-tiered uh, organic soil. Uh, it's not yet built. It's been designed, but it's not yet been built. So we don't have data on it, but uh, we'd be happy to follow up with you uh, or get, um, and gets after, after his first harvest to get some data on it. Yeah, that'd be great. I'll, yeah, uh, I'll reach out to you and Mike on that. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, take me through a little bit of the process. If someone is going into this as a grower or as an investor or as a grower trying to set up a new facility, uh, they would want to talk to someone like you, obviously, but there's other key players in this, in this planning process. Um, who are the, who are those key players? Like, who do you think should be involved if someone's really interested in properly setting up a, a new grow facility? So, um, yeah, that's a really that's a good approach and and or a good question. The way we approach that is that um, in the six when I started this work um, six years ago in in twenty. 14, um, I didn't know what horticulture process engineering was. Um, it was not, you know, and I don't know, if, I don't think I coined that term, but I certainly, in, by, the, by 2019, um, last year, I, 
I would I don't do any jobs without a Hort process engineer, and there are some great ones. I mentioned Mike Zartarian, uh, Tony Van Ice uh, is another one. Uh, there's some there's some great folks around the country who who serve that role, and so that's one of the primary things uh, in the way we practice uh, that's different. So so um, first and foremost, it's because I'm humble. I don't claim to know everything. I'm not you know growing growing plants is 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 in my background. I actually grew up on a Christmas tree farm in Connecticut. So I have put things in the dirt and added so and added uh, lime and you know various nutrients, but I don't claim to be an expert on 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 uh, everything horticultural. So bringing on that expertise to my team is is step one. Understanding my customers' KPIs, key performance indicators, uh, is really step two because that is where the money comes from, right? Is that it's that promise that we make to our investors that that allows us to operate. And so understanding those KPIs. Um, is key. So if if manufacturing is part of the is part of the plan, uh, then bringing in somebody with an expertise, let's say it's ethanol and ethanol extraction, and ha- we'll bring in that person on our team. Um, so <clears throat> excuse me. So we have so getting the team. I guess what I'm underscoring here is getting the team right um, from from the uh, from the grower's perspective and from the entrepreneur's perspective. Um, it's well from the growers' perspective. It's about horticulture and it's about process and flow. From the entrepreneurs, you know, from the C-suite, the the, the CEO, CFO, COO, uh, it's about those KPIs and managing the entire process. So we bring in, so we look at the entire process. Meaning, there's a facility, there's a whole building, and it's made up of certain key key parts. Horticulture is first and foremost. Uh, second is manufacturing. Uh, and the third is is management of the employees, right? Understanding that the employees have a break room and that they have the right, you know, bathroom and shower facilities. And um, so getting the team right is part of it. Um, um, there's a lot of players uh, that help at the various stages. So civil engineers uh, that lay out parking and, you know, figure out the, the boundaries and the topography of the site and what can be put where. Um, and so we work very closely with civil engineers on every job that we do, even if it's an existing building. Uh, we still have a civil engineer who is the one who who, who really interfaces with the town uh, when it comes to getting permits uh, at the early stages. And um, we work closely with legal counsel from our with our customers, understanding what their you know what their obligations are legally, um, what their license, what their stage they're in in the licensing process. So that the work in planning for the facility lines up neatly with uh, with their licensing process and with their capital capital draws when you know when when their funding is available. Because one of the hard things in cannabis, as everybody knows, is the start stop start stop start stop. It's gas and brake, gas and brake. So we try to work with customers on sort of capex planning. Um, in addition to team building, it's understanding when capital is needed and how much so that our customer can talk intelligently to their funders and to say, here's a milestone. This is what the whole team is doing. And this is what it's going to cost to get to that milestone. And then here's the next milestone. Here's what the team needs to do to get to that milestone. And there's see down way down there in the distance, that's milestone number three. And that's where we start to turn a profit. And we work with our customers to give them that ability to communicate at that level. Right, so that you you know what the milestone coming up is, you know who all your team members are that are contributing to that to the success of that milestone, 
and you can better evaluate risk. Um, you know, what's the risk if we don't hit the milestone or if somebody tells us no when we get there? Um, so it's about team building and then about good forecasting. Yeah, that's that's a lot. It's a little scary to me, just even when you say it like this. I think of all the steps and costs associated with setting up a new facility, and it's uh, it, it can be pretty massive. It's daunting, um, yeah. Yeah, and realistically, uh, there's so many hurdles along the way that people don't realize when they first get started. I mean, in some states like Oklahoma, it's it's fairly simple. In other states like where you are, uh, it's it can be really challenging. So, uh, yep. it's unfortunate, like looking at it from a grower's perspective, uh, myself, like all of this stuff is sort of things that I don't want to deal with. I don't even want to think about. I just want to get in there and start working with some plants and, uh, right. Right. you can't do that. Like <laughs> that's unfortunate, but it's the reality of the fact that this, if you want to do this commercially and legally, you have to start thinking of it like a business. And that's not to take away from the art and craft of cultivation and the science around cultivation. It's just these are the steps that you're going to have to go through just to be able to allow the government to allow you to do what you want to do. Ted, you reminded me of something. Yeah, we met at the PhotoX um, Photobiology Conference uh, in Austin, Texas last year. One of the presenters there um, hit something home for me, which is that just because we like to grow it doesn't mean it's what the customer wants to buy. And I think that's a mantra that makes a lot of sense to me because I meet a lot of folks coming in and they point and they say, I want one of those, meaning a, a cultivation facility, right? And they don't yet know what their customer is demanding. They've never really polled their customers. There's just this sort of general attitude out there that everybody wants to buy weed. So if I can grow weed, I can mint money. And I think the, the industry is maturing now to a level where people really need to focus in on not just we're going to grow, we're going to grow cannabis and we're going to grow really good cannabis and we're going to grow prize cannabis, but rather is understanding the customer base and saying, which, you know, are we selling only to, you know, you know, uh, boomer women, right. Who are over 65 years old, right narrow your focus down to, to a really specific customer group, understand what those people want and produce what that demand dictates, right? That is a different idea about, that's the sort of business approach. doesn't mean that you, you can't grow the, the best weed you've ever grown or get to do, to grow the way you want to grow, but it's really understanding what is the output and who is it intended for? Um, that's a, yeah, that's a, a great point. Approach. That's a really good point because I know a lot of, for a lot of growers, like high end flower is the, is sort of the end all be all. Uh, yet here in Washington, the market has changed to where a lot of stuff is going, you know, being made into distillate or edibles or, uh, even pre-rolls have become really popular. And, uh, it's, it's funny cause from a grower perspective, they're like, I can, I can roll my own joint. Um, I would rather see the flower and have good flower. Uh, but that's not necessarily what's moving off the shelves as quickly. And not everyone can produce high-end flour. Like there's only room for so many people at the top of that pyramid. Uh, so yep. it is something to consider. Uh, you know, what, what is your audience in, in all of this? I think that's a really good point. And that kind of transitions sort of to my next question. One of the things that you brought up, uh, which wasn't a, a term that I was particularly familiar with when we started talking about it, was this idea of toll processing. Can you talk a little sure. bit about what, toll processing is and how it fits uh, in the cannabis industry and what the potential is there. 
we've seen a trend here in Massachusetts, excuse me, which is that um, it's not that hard to, to spot, which is that there's a lot of profit to be made in processing, right? You're not just a farmer, you know, field gating, uh, you know, at wholesale prices. But if you can turn it into a product, uh, there's a much higher margin to be to be derived from the from uh, at the end of the day. So um, we're actually when pe when our customers now we have a, I'm seeing it over and over when they have a choice of phasing their construction based on limited dollars, our customers are choosing to build the the, the processing facility first, and that's an interesting trend. And uh, the next trend that I'm seeing is we have an, an, another customer who is specifically asked us to design the processing, which is extraction, post-extraction, the wipe film, the, the, the flowing film, the winterizing, and the, and the uh, to get to broad-spectrum distillate, and the manufacturing piece, to size that for a capacity that exceeds what, they're, what they can grow. So if you have a way of, you know, estimating grow, you know, at, let's take an average number of 40 grams, 42 grams per square foot, right? And you calculate from that that you can do 5,000 pounds a year. Um, toll processing would be where you would manu you would create the capacity to handle handle 10,000 pounds a year. So there's 5,000 pounds of biomass that you can buy from other growers at wholesale and process and put out product. So toll processing, sort of like a toll road, means you pay to you pay to drive on it. Uh, you you would pay you would uh, you know, so the, the processor who is doing toll processing is doing is not just in many cases, they're not just a, a processor. They're not just a manufacturer. They're also a grower, uh, but they will actually buy in excess of what they can grow themselves at the wholesale and then um, be able to, to manufacture more than what they could otherwise. Yeah, that's an interesting concept. Have you seen that occur on the other end, like on the propagation side? I know here in Washington, there was a company uh, when we first switched over to REC called the Clone Zone, and they were able to fund their build out of a new facility based off of selling clones to the rest of the Washington market when it first got started because everyone was looking for plants at the beginning. They had all the, you know, hype cultivars at the time. And, uh, it was a really smart business move for them to provide, you know, provide starts for people. Now there's a lot of challenges from an IPM perspective and insects and liability around all those things. But, uh, the potential for, for, uh, a business opportunity there, I think is really high in new States. Well, you know, I, so I told you that I grew up on a Christmas tree farm, right? So there's there's no there's not a Christmas tree farmer in the United States who who grows their own tree from seedlings. The state fills that role. Uh, almost everybody buys seedlings, which we would call it you know a small a young plant coming you know with a root system, um, from a supplier. Like you're, what you're talking about now is a mature horticulture market. It's very similar in, in flowers. Um, it's certainly true in tr in trees. Tr think about every nursery you drive by. That's what they are. That's what you know. That's what the name implies, right? It's a nursery. So for the landscape industry, uh, there are that's that's what a mature market looks like, where you have different businesses set up to handle different stages of plant growth. Uh, I think cannabis is otherwise unique in the fact that it 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 tackles the whole piece, and that's coming out of prohibition, right? That was a dictate because it's been under prohibition. Uh, I think as 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 the industry, you know, 
matures, people will find business opportunities uh, with small niches like that. Yeah, and I think this idea of toll processing, to get back to that idea, uh, really mitigates a lot of the risks associated with poor crop performance or crop loss. Um, sure. You know, you know, you know what you're buying. It's already a commodity at this point, and then you can manufacture it into whatever you want to manufacture, and you already know what the market will bear on that end. So the risk associated with it, it would be much lower. I would, I would assume. The risk is lower and the profit margin is higher. Uh, there's just the cost to get in is, is more expensive, though. As you can, you know, as you as you know, when you've looked at, you know, ethanol processing equipment, that's expensive buy. That's not a cheap. That's not a cheap entry point. Uh, but you know, the ROI is certainly there. Yeah. So Brian, just to change directions one last time here, one of the things that you and I talked about uh, when we were waiting at the airport was some of the stuff you're doing around cannabis advocacy and you were kind of sharing some of your thoughts around the direction of the cannabis industry on more of a national level. Uh, do you want to talk a little about what you have going on on that side of things? I'll put in uh, sure. happy to. I'll put in two big plugs, um, shameless plugs to nonprofit organizations. I volunteer with the uh, NCIA, the National Cannabis Industry Association. I put a lot of time in there. Uh, I chair a committee. Uh, we're called the Facilities Design Committee, um, as an appropriate place for an architect, I guess. Um, and that's a committee that I actually started. It uh, didn't exist um, before this year. I'm just coming up to the end of a one-year term. Uh, there's a great group of people. Um, there's about 10 of us who are active uh, from, from, from Sacramento to Boston. Um, we meet, uh, we, we um, meet once a month and, um, and we're making some good progress. We'll be um, pushing out information for growers about facilities through the NCIA. Uh, there's a series of podcasts, not to compete with you, Tad, but there is uh, NCIA <laughs> does also host podcasts. Um, look for some information there. Uh, NCIA does websites, uh, excuse me, webinars. I misspoke there, webinars. And um, they obviously have, you know, they trade shows as well. So there's, uh, there's one coming up in San Francisco um, at the end of September. And um, so we, so those are three ways in which the uh, NCIA's facility design committee is going to get uh, information out. So that's, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, it's a good organization. It has, you know, its main mission is, is uh, advocacy at the federal level, but I think it does a pretty good job as well of, of getting information out to members uh, and to non-members alike. Um, the other group uh, is out of, um, Portland, Oregon, they're called RII Resource International, that Resource Innovation Institute, excuse me, RII Resource Innovation Institute. Derek Smith is a director, uh, and I volunteer a lot with them. Um, I'm a, um, we just did a webinar um, last week for Michigan growers about called Efficient Yields, and you can find more information on their website, um, RII's website, um, about their Efficient Yields webinar program. Uh, for Michigan, there's more coming up, and then there's uh, they've got one slated for Massachusetts growers as well. I think they do a really good job of harnessing um, when you want to have a discussion around sustainability and efficiency in energy consumption uh, and water consumption and uh, utility, how to interface with the utilities. RII is doing a lot of um, good work in um, getting growers to talk to utility people. I think that's an important step, right? They, we used to run away from the utilities because they were the people who would report us to the police kind of thing. 
Um, today it's different. Uh, an early relationship with the utilities is really key to a f facility's success, right? Getting your power on time, getting it non-interrupted, getting the right amount of power or gas, if it's a gas pipeline or, a, or electrical service, um, RII does a really good job of advocating for growers and bringing uh, growers and utility companies together in discussions around uh, energy efficiency. So a big plug for, for, uh, for Derek Smith. Well, and hopefully getting your rebate too uh, in, in states where oh, that's applicable, huge. like here in Washington. They're that's huge. a lot of money. Yeah. No, these are, these are, these are high six figures, right? High six figures uh, that, custo that, that our customers are getting back. Um, and, you know, you talked about the difference in, in, in cost, right? The, the high cost of LED lighting fixtures. You know, there's many claims out there that, that the cost is based on the fact that the rebates are out there, right? If you can pay 330 bucks for a double-ended HPS, you know, why would you spend 12 to 1500 for a for an LED light fixture? Well, many of the reasons are is because in certain states, 70% of that delta is paid for by the utility, right? That, yeah. That brings that cost down enormously. So, so talking early to your utility about rebates is key to the success of a grow. Yep. Yeah, and I'll be sure to put on the website page links to both of those websites as well as your website so people can check that out on the oh, podcast cool. page. Yeah. Very cool. Well, Brian, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you uh, so much for uh, coming on the show. And uh, I look forward to talking and hopefully working with you uh, in the future. Ted, has been awesome. Thank you. Yeah, we've been talking about this for a while. I'm glad it, I'm glad it happened. Thanks, man. Yeah. All right. Have a great day, Brian. Thank you. Be well. That was Brian Anderson with Anderson Porter Design, and you are listening to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey. Don't forget to check out our website at www.kisorganics.com for more information and resources and links to topics we discussed on the show today. And please give us a follow on Instagram at kisorganics so you can stay up to date on our grower profile series and virtual live tours. I've also been documenting a greenhouse trial with tomatoes and malted barley on there, and we've done a couple of virtual live tours already. We toured Maine Craft Cannabis and Simply Green Farms in Oklahoma. I have other tours lined up with David Bernard Perone to tour the largest organic cannabis facility in the world and some others from all around the United States. This is a great chance to see inside these grows and ask questions directly live to the growers. Thanks for listening.